Good morning again, everybody. You may have a seat. <laughs> I'm trading in my coffee for tea. Um, as much as I love coffee, it's not as forgiving on my voice during a sermon. So, uh, it's good to be here with you this week. And today marks the final installment in our fall series, We Are Anchor of Hope. And throughout our series, we've been trying to answer the question, what does it mean to have this new name? Is it different than really what we were trying to do before? In a lot of ways, yes, because otherwise, why would you change a name? But our heart and our core as a church family is remarkably the same. Uh, whether we've verbalized it or not, um, our heart beats the same. We are a Bible-based church. We are a gospel-driven church. We are a gospel-centered church. We love the gospel, and we'll talk more about that uh, as we go forward today. Um, our series has really centered around two key verses that are found in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And the first, you can go to the next slide up on the screen. Um, it comes from Matthew 22. This is, uh, Jesus was asked by one of the, the, the lawyers at the time, you know, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And you can go to the next slide. What's also called the Great Commission, which was Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. He said to his disciples, he said, <coughs> therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's really what our series has centered around. Uh, you can go to the next slide. Just as a bit of a recap, a review, um, we exist as a people to live like Jesus and to share his love. That's our mission statement. And as we do that, we hope that we will be partnering with what God's doing to be restoring hope in our community one person at a time. We have five values, five core values that all center around five core purposes of the church. Um, they are, the first is we are committed to God and his word. So we teach from the Bible and that uh, fills the function of worship. Uh, we are connected to each other through Jesus Christ. So we gather, we gather to experience God together. That's the fellowship piece. That's that togetherness, whether that's 
this group or if we were to go and meet in somebody's house or go meet over at Miller Park underneath the, one of the structures there. Fellowship, we're connected through Jesus Christ. Uh, the third is that we are called to spiritual growth. So we participate in Bible studies, life groups, and other growth opportunities. Um, when we're saved, we are babies in the faith. Uh, and the hope, like with all babies, is that you don't just stay there, uh, that hopefully you would grow and progress and that, you know, even if you're stumbling a little bit, you'd begin to learn to walk on your own without the help of a, you know, uh, uh, a steadying device, right? Uh, we would hope that you would be growing just like I would be growing and we would also be growing together spiritually. And that happens through the process of discipleship. Uh, the fourth, which Jim covered last week, is that we are compelled to serve. So we serve both inside and outside the church. And that piece is from ministry, the doing the work of the ministry. And so uh, today, you can go to the next slide. Today, we are talking, this is our fifth value. We are commissioned to all. So we are deeply involved with our community and missions around the world. The title for today's message is Commissioned. Um, our passage is going to be John chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 42. We're going to skip a few verses in there because it was an aside to Jesus' disciples. Um, but what, is, what are we commissioned to? What are we uh, co-laboring with God to do? Um, and that's what we're going to be interested in talking about today. You can go to the next slide. <clears throat> Just to give you a little bit of context for what we're about to read, um, because sometimes uh, we gloss over it. Uh, I don't know when the last time we had a Bible study about this kind of uh, topic or, or thing, but um, we're, I know Jim talked last week about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I don't know if he went into some of the backstory history of what made the Samaritans who they were, so just for a brief moment, I want to give a snapshot of why there is this different group called Samaritans. So at one point in God's people's history, uh, they were all one people. Uh, then uh, this, uh, the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, he split the kingdom. And then you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah all in the promised land, but they were split up. Bad news bears. Northern kingdom of Israel, they never had a good king. Um, all the kings were wicked, and eventually uh, they got sacked by, I think it was the Assyrians, and so uh, people got, most of the nation got taken out into exile. 
a couple of years later, you had, so the southern kingdom of Judah, you had some good kings, but also mostly there were bad kings. Uh, and the people were also wicked. And so eventually, uh, the Babylonians sacked the southern kingdom of Judah and carried them off into exile. Then, as we covered back in the summer, we were going through the book of Nehemiah. And that was the celebration. Everybody's coming back because they'd been in exile. They'd been on this permanent timeout that God had pretty much said, you guys go over here and you're going to have this time of forced rest. And, um, and so people started coming back. Well, what had happened, though, is that in each case um, of the exile happening, um, you had this group that was left behind. It was this little remnant that was there. The only problem is that the Assyrians were really good at trying to um, uh, homogen or starting to blend cultures together so that you wouldn't um, have too much autonomy. And because if you did, then you might get really full of yourself and think, oh, well, I should overthrow my government and go figure. Um, and so what they did is they said, you will intermarry, which as we've talked about before in our series on Nehemiah, um, that was a big no-no. They weren't supposed to intermarry with the nations around them. But at this point, they were encouraged to do so. And that group that resulted in that was uh, of uh, people who had intermarried with other nations in the northern kingdom of Israel area called Samaria. That's where you get the Samaritans. Well, when all the exiles started coming back, they realized, hey, there's these people who have been doing this terrible thing that God told us not to do. We don't want to be unclean like them, so we're going to separate ourselves from them. And so naturally, over the course of the next couple hundred years, there grew this giant rift between the two groups where it was really a racial tension that was happening, where, um, where there was no good, like by the time of Jesus, there was no good rhyme or reason. People just knew, well, we just hate those Samaritans. They're just a dirty people. We don't associate with them and, and whatnot. Um, so deep was this, this prejudice that the Jews had toward the Samaritans that they developed ways to go around Samaria, even if the fastest route was to go through Samaria, um, just so that they wouldn't have to deal with or cross the path of a Samaritan. And... Um, I know that I'm a young buck in the room. Um, and I know that you all have lived through um, different times where there have been more uh, flagrant moments of racism that you have uh, been subject to because that's just the culture that we had back then. And uh, this sermon isn't about racism, 
per se, but it is about um, the fact that we are commissioned. So God has a mission for us to do that we're doing with him, co-mission. We're commissioned not just to some, not just to the people that we like or that are nice to us, but we're really commissioned to all, even when that's hard and even when that's uncomfortable. And so that's just a snapshot of that dynamic. Another snapshot of uh, what brings us to this point in the Gospel of John is that uh, Jesus has just started his ministry. He was baptized by John the Baptist. Heaven's open spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove, and he is now anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is empowered for his ministry. And let's see, what are some other things that happened? Uh, Jesus went to a wedding and uh, threw a giant rager uh, with a bunch of wine. Uh, if that offends you, I'm sorry. Look it up in Scripture. It, Jesus made a bunch of wine. I'm not going to be like some people who try to explain it away and say, it was just really great grape juice. I'm sorry. It was wine. Um, but so Jesus did that. And uh, so that was really a fascinating thing. He then took his disciples to Jerusalem. Uh, in John's gospel, this is where he has Jesus clear out the temple because Jesus is just really hopping mad that they're um, doing stuff in the temple that shouldn't be done there and because it's supposed to be marked as a house of prayer. And that, oh, and then uh, while he's in Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, Nicodemus, uh, one of the Pharisees, wants to have this private meeting with Jesus, and that's where we get uh, the famous uh, verse, John 3.16. In that conversation, uh, or from that conversation, we see, uh, you know, that uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Um, And so from that, from all of that happening, then... Jesus decides to go back home to Galilee. And we're going to pick up reading there. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It's going to be a lengthy passage, so bear with me. I got my tea to get me through. Uh, All right. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. (coughs) 
And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. Don't you just love how just frank she is? I love it. Uh, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshiped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. All right, let's jump down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me 
everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. So the first thing, it, it might seem strange to, to use this particular story as, uh, as a, a proof verse for our value uh, being commissioned to all. But what I'd like to look at it like is almost like a case study on evangelism. Uh, both from the perspective of Jesus evangelizing to this woman, but then also for her with her newly found faith, how she actually came to start to evangelize towards the end of the story. So it'll be more of like an exposition that way, and, and we'll look at it. So the first thing I see, you can go to the next slide, in our passage is God's heart and our need. So here's this woman. Uh, she's been divorced a couple of times. And uh, as some of you have experienced divorce or you know people in your families who have experienced that, uh, that is such a, a heart-wrenching, um, tearing apart of uh, your soul. Um, not uh, just because of love lost, but because of just there, there's, a, there's a ripping that happens uh, when the two that had become one then separate. And for this woman, she's done that now four times. And this fifth guy, she's not even married to him, but she's with him. And she's in a whole kind of mess and a need. What I love um, about those introductory verses that really set up the scene is that John wrote that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to technically go through Samaria. There were surely other highways and byways he could have gone to sidestep. That would have been more culturally appropriate for him and his disciples to go. And yet, the scripture tells us he had to go through Samaria. What I find interesting about that is that at this point, Jesus is being led by the Holy Spirit to do this ministry. Um, the Father is speaking, the Holy Spirit is communicating to Jesus the Son, <coughs> and Jesus is following what the Father says. And so God evidently has a very clear purpose in mind 
for Jesus to go through Samaria. God's heart was still for the Samaritans, even though they were ostracized and cast off by the Jews. God's heart was for this woman. He didn't want her to continue to feel lost and ashamed and broken. He wanted to see her healed and restored. Not just so that he could use her to spread his message, but because he actually had a care for this woman. And so that's what we first see, God's heart, but then also our need, because um, here's this woman, and she was a literal woman. I have no reason to doubt why she wouldn't be. Um, and you are a literal person. You have all kinds of stuff that has hurt you, has uh, caused wounding in your life or broken you, uh, whether it's in your relationships or your work situation, or maybe it's as you're in retirement and you're adjusting to the newness that that all transpires. Maybe it's uh, a chronic illness or whatever. You have a great need, both probably physically and in your soul. And Jesus had to go to you because he wanted you to be in his family as well. And I'm not going to go into a ton of the detail of, uh, you know, or speculate about uh, this woman too much beyond that point, but she was really hurting. Um, she, you know, because of when it describes when she came to the well in the middle of the day, um, she probably was expecting nobody to be there. And yet Jesus was there. <laughs> what a shock. Um, and so you can go to the next slide. The next thing I see is that God meets us in our mess with truth and love. So Jesus, he asks a very simple question you know, can I get a drink? <laughs> or can you, well, can you get me a drink? <coughs> and um, if, if you've been around people who, uh, who have had any kind of trauma in their life uh, associated with a certain gender, it's striking that Jesus is a man He's there, he's alone, he's a single man. It's scandalous that he's there alone with a woman who's not his wife, because he doesn't have a wife, but he's with that gal, and then he's asking her for a drink. And uh, I just imagine the feeling of disdain that this one, or just this tension that she would have had of trying to figure out, okay, here's this guy, social norms tell me I should do this, but I don't really want to do this. I don't even know him. Uh, not only that, he's a Jew, and <laughs> never the twain shall meet. <laughs> like, you know, we don't associate with each other. In case you didn't get the memo, Jesus, you're not supposed to be here <laughs> in this section of town, right? And yet, God met her in her mess. Uh, 
Um, the time of day, uh, you know, you only go to a certain place when it's deserted on purpose if you don't want to be seen, if you don't want to have to face people. Um, and I, I'm not just talking about being an introvert. I'm saying this woman had a lot of hurts that she was dealing with. And, and she was probably feeling like a mess, probably feeling pretty empty, you know, uh, especially from having that many divorces in her life and that just strains on her relationship and everything. I imagine that she, even though she brings up the topic of worship, that she probably felt pretty far from God. Um, even if she had a concept of who she thought God might be in whatever weird mixed up Samaritan religion that they had all mixed together and blended with these other cultures, but she knew enough about the, the Hebrew religion to know what they believe <coughs> and about those roots. But as Jesus engages with this woman in, you know, verses 16 through 18. Um, he does so where he, he points out this truth. Go get your husband. Because, you know, uh, he had offered living water, which is also ironic, let's be honest, that he asked for a drink of water and yet he's offering living water. Something's going on here. It's going to be fun. Uh, but what's interesting is that, you know, uh, after all of that, and she expresses, yes, please give me this living water. I never want to have to come here again. I never want to have to thirst again. And Jesus says, go get your husband. There's the truth. There's something wrong in this woman's life, and he's getting to the heart of it. And, but he's doing it in love. Uh, she points out, I don't have a husband. He says, yep, you're right. Here's your situation. Here's the truth. You've had, you know, what was it? Was it the, you've had five husbands, and you're not even married to the one you're with. So now she's on number six. Um, you know, I'm Henry VIII, I am. Henry VIII, I am, I am. I love that song. Anyway, um, and man, what a mess. But God's not afraid to step into that mess. He's not doing it to be a meanie. He's not doing it to try to, you know, to, to wreck her, her life, as it were. He's doing it because he loves her. And there's something she needs, and it's healing. She needs to receive that good news and to experience that transformation. And that only comes with also facing the cold, hard facts and the truth that's there. In our lives, when we're met with the gospel, it's really great. Jesus 
perfect, awesome, holy God took on human flesh, came, lived a perfect life, died in my place, rose again on the third day, offers me new life for free. All I got to do is believe in it and accept it and say, yes, Jesus, I trust in you for salvation. And then I'm saved and rescued. And I, I now have the Holy Spirit with me and, you know, leading and guiding me into all truth and, and trusting in him. But in that process, I have, you know, you and I both, when we accept that, that good news, we come face to face with our sin, with the fact that there's something not right in us and only God can help us remedy that and to help put us back together again. And that's scary, frankly. Um, and it was scary for this woman. You can go to the next slide. I gotta start getting with it here. Um, the third observation I have is that God is here to help us in our hurting, even when we insist on hiding. So Jesus points out the situation he tells her the truth. He's doing it in love. And then she brings up a philosophical, theological debate. Um, she's hiding, people. She's hiding. Um, she doesn't want to have to actually deal with this. That's not why she came to the well that day. She only came there for water. Um, and now there's this guy poking in her business. And, you know, he's not letting up. <laughs> Uh, and so she says, look, I can see you're a prophet, so you Jews say this, and we say this. What do you think? Why is it this way? And what I love is that Jesus doesn't dismiss her, her question. Uh, he answers her question. He says, I tell you the truth. A day is coming when it's not going to matter if you worship on this mountain or Jerusalem. It doesn't matter as long as you do it in spirit and in truth. And that's a whole sermon for another time. But what is fascinating is that he doesn't, in that moment, he doesn't tell her that's not important. He answers her. He gives her the dignity that she has this, you know, whether because she's hiding. Obviously, this is something that has been on her mind before, where it's been an interest of hers of, you know, there's this difference between our two groups, and you guys say this, we say this, but, you know, why is it that way? And Jesus just clearly explains it to her. How this applies to us is that there are things that you and I wrestle with in our hurting when we're in pain, questions that are really hard to answer and might not always have nice, easy answers. Um, but God is patient and he's willing to sit with us through those questions 
and to help us through that. He's, and, but not just to answer our, our questions, but ultimately he wants to get to what's really going on, the deeper issues at play. He's trying to help us where we're actually hurting, not just the surface level stuff. Um, it's always interesting to me that in one of the reasons why, as much as I love Bible studies, um, because I do, I love information and I love uh, learning and learning more details and facts and things. Um, the one big drawback to Bible studies in a church context is it's really easy to hide in a Bible study um, because you can just be talking about facts and figures and things and interesting points about, well, this was happening at this time and here's the history of this and theologically Paul is talking about this or this is how this references this other thing and we can almost get to the point where we hold the scripture at arm's length saying, I'm going to just talk about this because this is where I'm safe. If I actually let you in, you're going to see all the gunk inside of me, all the stuff I'm dealing with that's not so pretty. And you might judge me and say, oh, dang. <laughs> I don't even know what to say at that, you know? Um, something that I, I greatly valued in uh, our last season of ministry at Glenfair is that uh, we were a part of a small group experience where because everybody had a chance to share their testimony, we, <laughs> we knew everybody's stuff. There, there was no place to hide in the small group. Uh, usually in discussion, even if you tried to, you know, cleverly say it in a certain way to where it, you know, tried to mask whatever you were going through, people were able to say, to speak into that, not in a judging way, not in a way to try to feel like, <clears throat> like you're being attacked but that there was real help that could be had. Um, and I, I have plenty of stories of testimonies of how um, people in our small group there were really helped by that. That's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about small groups, because even though I love Bible studies and I believe there's a value to them, we're still going to do those kinds of things, but there's something extra special about a life group where if you're doing life with people, you know what they're going through and you can speak into their lives and they can speak into your life. And it's actually a much richer experience of the family of faith. And so this woman, she's just, she's bringing up the arguments. And so she's holding Jesus at arm's length at this point. She had been starting to open up. Yes, please, sir, I do want this living water. Whoa, no, wait, you just brought up husbands. That, that's a wound. That's a trigger. I'm not going to go there. But God's here to help. Uh, you can go to the next slide. The beautiful thing 
is that we can personally experience God's saving presence. So within that whole argument, uh, one of the beautiful dynamics is that it was starting to talk about this future day of salvation that the Samaritans would have known about because they were a part of God's people at one point, and they were uh, they understood bits and pieces of the scriptures, um, and so they would have known also from all the prophets who had spoken to the people in Samaria um, that God there was going to come a day when God was going to send his servant, the Messiah, to come and set all things right. And that was going to bring salvation and restore the, the kingdom. Um, and so, <coughs> it gets down to it, and she says, you know, I know Messiah is going to come, and he's going to explain all this to us. And then Jesus says, I am the Messiah. And this is a radical moment for her. We don't have it recorded in John precisely, but what we do have is her response to this revelation. Jesus has just revealed himself, just clear as day to this woman saying, plain as can be, I am the Messiah. He doesn't do that kind of plain talk with everybody in the Gospels, friends. He, he speaks a lot in parables and different things. He doesn't even talk that clear to his disciples. He makes them work for it. But with, <laughs> but with this woman, he just says, I'm the guy. I'm in. I'm the one you're looking for. And what takes place then is she drops everything and books it into town to tell them, here's this guy who's told me everything I've ever done, and I didn't tell him ahead of time. Like, he just, he knows it. Could this be the Messiah? And that, that spark of faith, it transformed her from this hurting, shamed woman going to the well at the middle of the day for water to now a, a joyful, like, living woman who's now come alive again and is not running away from people, but she's running to people to share this good news that she's found. We can personally experience that too, where you are hurting, where you have hang-ups or, or, or different habits that you're doing to try to mask whatever's going on inside. You can experience that kind of transformation too. I believe it, because when we have that revelation from Jesus, and we experience that amazing gift of love that's not conditioned on anything that we could ever do, but it's just because he loves us. That's world-changing. And so we, too, can personally experience that. You can go to the next slide. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. So if you were to, I guess, identify kind of three movements for this woman in this story, it would be these three words, experience, embody, and express. She had an experience with Jesus. She wasn't looking for it, but it happened. And uh, she experienced uh, the, the great and awesome goodness of his grace and his love and his truth, um, meeting her uh, where he has every right and, and privilege and role to judge her, and yet he withholds that judgment and he shows her love instead, um, and dignity and honor and respect. Um, it's incredible. That experience of God's goodness, that changed her. That's something that started to really rewrite uh, her embodiment as a person. What I mean by that is that her, her whole countenance changed. Who she was changed. How she was changed. And so she began to embody that goodness that she'd just experienced. And then she carried it with her to express it to other people. What I find interesting is that um, in verse 39, all the people from town, they're shocked that this woman's coming to tell them about Jesus. So they come out to see for themselves. Um, and what I love is how they said, after a couple of days spending time with Jesus, you know, we, some of us believed you just because of what you said. But now that we hear him for ourselves, now we know that he is the Savior of the world. He is that Messiah. And so as kind of a first act of evangelism, at least from John's perspective, here's this Samaritan woman. Before the church has ever been born yet, she's going out and sharing the gospel that she's experienced that from Jesus himself, this interaction that she's had with Jesus. Come, hear this man who's told me everything I ever did. He's amazing. Could this be the Messiah? And how this all fits into what we're talking about for today. So that's the case study part. We are commissioned to all. We have a mission. You have a mission to spread the good news that Jesus Christ has come to give us new life and life to the full that you personally, you have experienced this new life for yourself. And so that means that you are commissioned both to the people you like and also to the people you don't like. The people who maybe they treat you okay and maybe the people who have done you wrong, you're supposed to go and be available when God tells you to, to go and share that with people. Now, what that means is that for action, we're deeply involved with our community. Uh, I think our church pre-COVID, we used to be. 
Um, and now we're at a point where we, we got to get back on the bandwagon again. And so that's something that we're going to be focusing on in the coming uh, months and years. Um, but we also participate in missions around the world. That's uh, the work of people who uh, want to share the gospel to all the world. And so they are going to um, uh, the uttermost parts of the world with pla places where people don't know Jesus yet to share this good news. Some, uh, some examples of what it could look like to, to evangelize, to, uh, to be on mission. Um, uh, two things, and then we'll wrap it up. <clears throat> so shortly um, before, uh, well, not shortly, it was the season that brought us here, actually. Um, I was, I think it was Easter Sunday, or it was like right after Easter Sunday. Um, we had this guy in our church, he was a retired pastor from our conference who owned, or he ran an ice cream truck. Um, and for whatever reason, that particular day, whether it was hot outside or not, I can't remember, but he brought the ice cream truck to church that day. Um, and so after church, all the kids, mine included, went to go and get ice cream at the ice cream truck. Well, there was this house next to the church that used to be the parsonage, that at some point had been sold off, um, that was inhabited by uh, this uh, beautiful, young, um, stereotypical African-American family. Um, we had been for a long time a predominantly white church. Um, this family had never gone to our church before. Um, I had never met the people from this house before, other than just seeing them randomly in their backyard because the fence was open and all of that. Um, well, this neighbor's uh, kids were getting ice cream as well. And so after church on a Sunday, um, they were having a water balloon fight and, um, and my kids wanted to get involved. And so they started, you know, playing together. And so then that eventually led to us all uh, climbing over the fence uh, using a pool ladder uh, to get into their backyard. And it was the most amazing, eye-opening experience where I got to be present and, and represent Jesus to people I never have experienced their culture before in my life. Uh, it's one thing to my friend Stefan, who's the pastor at Glenfair, um, I mean, uh, he grew up in Oakland, California and, and whatnot. He's half Italian, half African-American. And uh, he had already enlightened me 
on all the different cultures of what it's like to grow up in the hood and different things. And, but for me, growing up in Portland, um, there was a divide um, that I naturally knew growing up in Southeast Portland, you don't go to Northeast Portland because that's where all the gangs are at. That's where all the violence is at. That's where all those people are at. And whether I ever wanted to try to associate it in my head or not, there was also a race attached to that. And I, you know, I love all people, but um, there was just naturally a fear that was there. And yet God had called me in this just purely innocent time to get to spend some time with this neighbor. Um, and uh, they made us some delicious shrimp, and it was fantastic, and uh, just, but as we were having our conversation, he was using a whole lot of language that I, I didn't know could be used in those certain ways, and I even, I checked with Stefan later, and I'm like, okay, when he said this, what does that mean? Because for me, it means this, which is bad. And he's like, oh, no, 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 that's actually a good thing. And I'm like, okay, all right, okay, here we go. My point is, so that's, but that's a natural thing. You have neighbors. Um, usually when we think of evangelism, or spreading the gospel, or any of that, usually we attach it to like a Billy Graham crusade, or a Luis Palau crusade, or some kind of evangelistic crusade, um, or maybe a street preacher, or a whoever, and we're saying, yeah, but that's not me. Friends, you've experienced Jesus. You've experienced the gospel. There is a, a message of you know, God's grace that's imprinted on your life that you can share with anybody who's around you, whether that's your kids or your neighbors or whoever, you have a story to tell. And it's not just the, not just the scriptural account, but what does Jesus mean to you? And and that's an encouraging thing, and you can speak that encouragement into other people's lives. The second example uh, is kind of, it's kind of nice that uh, we're still doing Operation Christmas Child because things like Operation Christmas Child, that's a way that we can also share to the all of the world um, through this organization that's taking these simple little gift shoeboxes to people and are telling them that Jesus loves them. And that's a way of spreading the gospel and co-laboring with God as well with that. And there's a whole host of other applications that we could draw from it. Not all of us are called to be missionaries. Um, not all of us are called necessarily to um, give financially to missionaries. Uh, there is a mission both global and local that is happening. 
Uh, there's needs in our community. There's people in our community who need the hope of the gospel. They need hope maybe even worse than this woman did in the story. And I mean, she was in rough shape. And there's people who are either in her situation or worse, and they need Jesus. They need to know his love. And they need whatever you've got. Whatever you uniquely have because you have a relationship with Jesus. And so we are commissioned to all. So that's why we, we do this mission work both in our community and, and support globally as well. How are you guys doing? I just want to encourage you. Um, I don't want to seem too heavy-handed. Um, if you've never, if you've ever thought that, you know, well, I'm just, I'm not an evangelist. I can't do that kind of thing. <clears throat> or maybe you've heard people talk about evangelism and then you feel guilty, like, oh, well, I, I don't do that. So, ah, oh, Lord, another thing I have to confess about. Okay. You know, um, I, I'm not here con to condemn you. All I'm here to do is encourage you and let you know Jesus is for you. He, he does have a mission that he's on about, and he'd like you to get on board with it. Um, and that can be really, that can look different for each and every one of us. So let's pray.